0: Good evening. I'm Martha Raddatz from ABC News.
1: And I'm Anderson Cooper from CNN. We want to welcome you to Washington University in St. Louis for the second presidential debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, sponsored by the Commission on Presidential Debates. All right, no more horsing off. It's time for debate. Debate Week, debate week is next week. Twitch.tv slash Young. if you watch the conventions with us. This is the place to do it and we're going to get started in the best way we know how. On Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, we're going to watch Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. That is the second debate in their three debate series, the Ken Bone debate. And then the next day, Tuesday, September 30th, it's time. Biden versus Trump, the first debate of the 2020 season, watch along with us, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. So, did did I miss anything? <laughs> Welcome everybody to the Politics 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 podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young. And and to be honest, I thought this was going to be a a, a command and control center uh, uh, issues from the the front war episode. Of this podcast I, I, I really thought that we were going to be going Back and forth on On all the, the, the X's and O's And who's going to and who's not going to Of this Ruth Bader Ginsburg Appointment But It, it kind of seems like it's done Kind of seems like it's over And it doesn't seem like There's going to be much of a fight about it We're going to talk about that we're going to go back in time and talk about the uh, actual ins and outs of the Merrick Garland situation. A lot of talk about hypocrisy. A lot of talk about norm-defying, rule-breaking, whether or not these politicians have any shame. Well, if that's the case, then we're going to we're gonna look into it. We're going to go back and uh, examine it. We also have a brief look at the uh, uh, possible nominees. Looks like we do have a very clear front runner. We're going to have a visit from Tom Merritt, who is going to give us the full explainer on this TikTok situation. And we have an interview about energizing the 18 to 25 year old voter, theoretically, A demographic that would be very excited by the idea that pro-choice policies could be hanging in the balance. Normally, those are issues that animate that voting block. How and why do these kids get to the polls? And why do they have the reputation of leaving some politicians at the altar? But first!
2: She just died?
1: Wow. I didn't know that. I just, uh, you're telling me now for the first time. She led an amazing life.
2: What else can you say? She was an amazing woman, whether you agreed or not, she was an amazing woman who led an amazing life. That's why I appeal to those few Senate Republicans, the handful who really will decide what happens. Please, follow your conscience.
1: The other question here, and you referenced Senators Murkowski and Collins who are saying let's do it after the election, the the Republicans need, uh, if
2: if there are four Republican defections, that just shuts this whole thing down. We've got two on the the books. Are there other senators out there on the Republican side that could uh, cross over and say let's not do this? I think the ones to watch right now are Mitt Romney. I think at this stage, it's appropriate to look at the Constitution and to look at the precedent, which has existed uh, over, well, since the beginning of our country's history. When there's a nominee of a party that is in uh, uh, in the same party as the Senate, then typically they do confirm.
1: A sampling of sounds that happened since the last time I spoke with you, beginning with that bizarre origin point where, after a rally, The president of the United States, Donald Trump, getting on Air Force One to the strains of Tiny Dancer by Elton John. First gets the news about uh, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You also heard Joe Biden in one of his few statements about this. And we're going to get into that in a second. And of course, Mitt Romney. Nobody has forgotten their mittens. Now, he has made it clear that he will support a vote, which means he will likely support the nominee of Donald Trump. And that means... Mitch McConnell looks to be on the verge of going 3 for 3 The first, the Merrick Garland gambit, that then leads to Neil Gorsuch, then... Justice Kavanaugh, and now the crown jewel, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat, a rock-solid liberal seat, could be flipped into the hands of a Republican nomination. And to be honest with you guys again, I I thought we would be dealing with the X's and O's on this for weeks, I, I thought this would be something that would go back and forth and to be loud and to be angry. And it still might. It still might come after the nomination process. But we certainly aren't seeing a lot of it now. Indeed, the extent of the Democratic and drawing on this is Chuck Schumer invoking the two-hour rule in the Senate. Wherein he's forcing all the senators to not go to their subcommittees. Oh no, cried the Senate, now forced to do less work. Now, he did show his teeth over the weekend, Schumer did. He went behind the mics with AOC, the woman who may or may not end his career in two years, to show party support. There he said that everything is on the table when it comes to the Supreme Court should the Republicans fill this seat before Election Day. That would presumably include expanding the Senate via statehood for Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C., and packing the court with four brand new seats. But beyond what I played for you, which was a clip from Sunday, Joe Biden has not made an issue of the Supreme Court since. Why? Why isn't Biden making a gigantic deal about this? Did he not watch over $100 million pour into Democratic coffers within 72 hours of RBG's death? Knowing that the villainous Republicans are going to do such a hypocritical and dastardly move? Isn't that the, like, textbook motivating factor for the Democratic base? And let's go back to that moment with AOC and Schumer. If they can come together, isn't this the moment where he can appeal to disaffected progressives? They now have one issue they can totally agree upon. That this is terrible and we need to do something about it. No, is the answer to all those. Because it's the virus, stupid. I've said that on this show that that is the defining issue of our election right now. The more Donald Trump tried to be economics first, the more he was slapped back because the nation was preoccupied with COVID. So let's take my own medicine here. If the Republicans have the votes and they're going to get their justice and they're going to tip the court, then even if this is... A battle that has been fought from before I was born. And I'm not exactly a spring chicken, all right? I got gray hair. It's going to be over. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. It's not worth it to muddy yourself with this loss. Biden doesn't believe that packing the courts is a good strategy with moderates he's staked his entire campaign on. That means he can't even hint at all options being on the table without getting into a conversation he doesn't want to have because any conversation that isn't about COVID-19 is one that he doesn't want to have. Especially this week. Various watchdogs have slowly reported what we marked on this podcast last week. The passing of 200,000 deaths from COVID-19 In the United States of America. For Biden, that's the story. Trump screwed up. People died. He wasn't big enough for the virus. Biden is. There's your headline printed. And so, we get into a fundamental debate on messaging. Are side quests helpful or folly? does the indulgence of a two-week story enhance or degrade your central message? Biden and his team very obviously believe that any time spent on the Supreme Court does active damage to his argument about Trump's handling of COVID. Otherwise, this is a no-lose position for him, at least in my opinion. He's got ready-made bad guys, he's got headlines, he's got energy, he's got a money machine, and he's got a reason to hold your nose and vote if you are a wary progressive. But he isn't going to push on this. And I suspect he won't. Trump, meanwhile, loves himself a side quest. Sure, everything began with build a wall in 2016, but between that golden escalator and the White House, he found time to denigrate John McCain, Ben Carson, Lindsey Graham. We had Hillary's emails, Judge Curio, Alicia Machado, Benghazi, Elizabeth Warren's grandparents, and many, many more. He literally took a side quest down to Mexico when the president invited both he and Hillary to meet. Now, we're going to see on election day whether or not the 2020 electorate rewards or punishes this kind of discipline. But in our ADD media environment, I tend to believe that you can and should spin multiple plates. I don't think voters are confused by multiple messages. I think they are looking for the one message they can grab onto. And they're pretty good at discarding the rest if they don't like them. And let's take another look at COVID. The UK is facing another lockdown. Israel's in another lockdown. Cases are rising in Spain and France. You also have a worldwide death toll that is rising to the point where America sticks out a little bit less like a sore thumb. So as much as I said over the summer that it's the virus, stupid, I'm beginning to have my reservations on how potent a totally COVID-focused campaign argument will be on November 3rd. Specifically, when Pfizer is possibly gift wrapping a we cleared phase three and have approval, vaccines are shipping out announcement in October. Now, Biden does have reason to have faith in this argument. When COVID looked to be waning in the early summer, a surge in the South and Southwest caused even the Trump administration to course correct on messaging and live events. And to that end, we have seen a slight uptick in cases since Labor Day. Should that continue? Maybe we do see a new round of lockdowns to coincide with elections And the consistent hammering of Trump's record on this works to perfection. But I can't help but sympathize with some Democrats who are violently motivated by the Supreme Court and wish more voice would be put to this process while also highlighting COVID. For them, they might wish they had a man that could do both.
2: find someone who just about everyone not only respects but genuinely likes, that is rare. This is the greatest honor of my life, other than Lynn agreeing to marry me 28 years ago. Look to
0: history. We haven't filled a vacancy created during a presidential election year in 80 years. The people
2: deserve to be heard. The president exercised his unquestioned authority under the Constitution to nominate somebody to this vacancy. But that same Constitution reserves to the United States Senate and the United States Senate alone the right to either grant or withhold consent.
0: I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, whoever it might be, made that nomination, and you could use my words against me, and you'd be absolutely right.
1: All right. Let's get into it. Merrick Garland. I gotta say, uh... I don't think anybody, nor reasonably should, anybody have have any expectation that a -a once-in-a-lifetime moment is going to happen again. So... As we go through those sounds, of course, Barack Obama announcing the nomination of Merrick Garland, Merrick Garland being oh sweet little Merrick Garland, and then the voices of the Republican Senate, Mitch McConnell, Chuck Grassley, John Cornyn, and at the end, bringing it on home, using his own words against him, is Lindsey Graham, all of whom are not only still in the Senate, but now support the nomination and approval of a Supreme Court justice. Let's get through the facts before we uh, make any judgments, though. March 16th, 2016, is when Obama nominated Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court. Uh, For comparison, it appears that we are going to get Donald Trump's appointment on Saturday. September 26th, that is a 194-day difference between the two. Make no mistake, Merrick Garland was then and should be understood now to be a, a bit of a bargaining chip. Sweet man though he is, he was very strategically put out there to be the closest thing that Obama was going to make to a peace offering. He wasn't stridently liberal and he was older. That means the seat's gonna come up faster. Now, the rumor was that if you reject Merrick Garland and either Ted Cruz or Donald Trump, those are the two frontrunners right now when all this is happening, when you know they ain't gonna... Take the White House. This is Hillary's election. Look at the polls. This is cut and dry. Three terms a Democrat in the White House. Book it. So either you take Merrick Garland and we punt this down the road. You get a centrist, blah, blah, blah. Or I'm going to put an 18-year-old on the court in my lame duck session. And you're going to hope that that person is not as liberal as what Hillary would do. So that's what's happening. You got Merrick Garland now. You take him. Well, the Senate never really had a a, a shot to even think about it. Back in the 114th United States Congress, Mitch McConnell had a 54-seat Senate majority to work with. So it would have been an uphill battle no matter what. Although we were about to go into a very tumultuous summer, wherein Donald Trump became more and more the inevitable nominee. And if he's the inevitable nominee, then that means that a lot of people didn't have faith in him. But McConnell shut this down before it even began. And I don't think Obama had the votes no matter what. Merrick Garland was kind of a show pony. And to think otherwise would just be kind of ignoring the fact that the people at the switches... We're making those decisions. Now, maybe if if uh, Barack Obama has a better relationship with Mitch McConnell, maybe Mitch McConnell has a better relationship with Obama. Maybe if there's some kind of horse trading that can happen, maybe there's a different outcome. But these two were at loggerheads. Mitch McConnell was very clear that he wanted to uh, uh, gut, gut through as little as Obama's uh, agenda as he possibly could. And this was on top of that list. And so, cocaine Mitch shut it down. He called Merrick Garland and uh, told him to his face, look, don't even show up. Republicans ain't going to see you, so you can meet with all the Democrats if you want, but uh, you're not getting a confirmation before Election Day. And for eight months, this hung in the air. And boy, did that look like a bad bet by McConnell. I really do wonder, despite the fact that I don't think Obama would have got the votes, I wonder if as, you know, that Access Hollywood tape is rolling out, whether or not there's any hesitation to just pull that Merrick Garland cord. Just say, oh man, it looks like Hillary's going to win on a walk. But he didn't. So let's take a look at what they said at the time. This is Senator Orrin Hatch. He is uh, the seat that Mitt Romney has right now. I think well of Merrick Garland. I think he's a a fine person, but his nomination does not in any way change current circumstances. Soon after, Senator Jeff Flake, remember him, said that Garland should not be confirmed unless Hillary Clinton wins the election. Although, he did say that if Hillary wins, they would confirm him in a lame duck session. At which point, I think the Democrats would have said, Ho, 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 maybe not. Maybe Merrick Garland really, really, really wants to be with his family right now. Maybe we need somebody who is just out of high school and loves voting with my air." 29 Republican senators announced by April that they would consider the Garland nomination in the lame duck. Jerry Moran and Lisa Murkowski. Lisa Murkowski, who is now saying she is both against taking a vote and will vote no if the vote comes up, reversed their positions, saying that they opposed the Garland uh, nomination. So Murkowski in a bit of a different position after four years of Trump. Meanwhile, two other Republicans, Mark Kirk and Susan Collins. She's the other one with Murkowski that are no votes for for whoever the nominee is this time. And Susan Collins is up for re-election in November. She expressed their support for hearings on an up or down vote on Garland, and Collins even went out and said she supported Garland's nomination. So for all the and drawing about Susan Collins, if we're going back to Merrick Garland, she has been consistent. She is against what Mitch McConnell wants. <laughs> Meanwhile, and I had forgotten about this, Ted Cruz, who at this point is running for president, and John McCain, both suggested that the Senate might not confirm Any nominee to replace Scalia, even if a Democrat won. Now, I don't know about all that, but I forgot about the tough talk from McCain on this. So what's our lesson here? What do we take from it? Are the Republicans hypocrites? Yeah. Duh. Are the Democrats hypocrites? considering how hard they pushed to fill a seat before election day. Of course they are. Nobody gets out clean on this one. You don't have something that was as pitched and loud as this particular process, where Merrick Garland has to this day remained a folk hero amongst Democratic supporters and then not have to eat it when the boomerang flips around and hits you between the eyes. But the only thing that I have ever promised for you, the listeners of this program, is that we will try to understand the real fault lines of power. And here are the real fault lines of power. If you got the votes, you do it. If you don't, you complain. Obama didn't, and he complained to the tune of various different uh, change.org petitions and very important people writing very strident op-eds in the Washington Post. Donald Trump's going to get his justice because he's got Mitch McConnell and the people willing to do it. The only question that remains is who? It's Amy Coney Barrett. Politics! Wait, for real? That's the segment? That's the segment? That's it? We just know? Do we know? I guess we kind of do. We kind of really do know. Th- there was really only two people that got... Uh, uh floated around, and it was Amy Coney Barrett, who was used as the backstop to dare Democrats to try and spike Kavanaugh because Amy Coney Barrett is somebody that... that Trump had already vetted and likes. She's very religious. She has said that she'll recuse herself uh, if if indeed uh, 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 certain decisions affect her Catholic upbringing. But that means she is dead on pro-life. In fact, Murkowski and Collins didn't want her. That's why they settled on Kavanaugh. That's why they supported Kavanaugh, knowing that if, the 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 decisions would only get harder if Amy Coney Barrett came down the pike. The other side is Barbara Lagoa. Barbara Lagoa is a conservative justice, but has a more settled, uh, a more a more settled idea on Roe v.ersus Wade. Has come out and said that Roe v.ersus Wade is settled law, and apparently the Florida contingent. Sorry
0: for. Party
1: Including Senators Rick Scott and Marco Rubio and Representative Matt Gates and Governor Ron DeSantis were really pushing Barbara Lagoa, a Cuban woman from Hialeah, because they believe that is a backbreaker for Biden in Florida, which it's mind-blowing to think of a Supreme Court, Nominee being somebody that uh, would affect the general election. But there was a lot of buzz over the weekend. I think it was a lot of the Florida people talking to the press and talking up Barbara Lagoa to try to make it a thing. But by all available reporting, not only is Amy Coney Barrett the prohibitive favorite. But also, this was something that has been in the works for a long time. Indeed, according to Axios' Jonathan Swan, Trump has been saving the three-named Amy Coney Barrett for Ruth Bader Ginsburg's spot since the beginning. That Gorsuch was the first. He, apparently, he's not really happy with Gorsuch. Then Kavanaugh, now Coney Barrett. It's uh, It's going to be interesting. Coney Bar- Amy Coney Barrett is somebody that the Democrats can make into a pro life handmaid's tail villain. But if Biden isn't doing anything now, is he keeping his powder dry? Is this all just going to be a Senate thing? Because if Chuck Schumer is the one leading the cause here, I don't know exactly how much it resonates, at least with the people that I think is. I, I I can't help but look at this as a bridge between Biden and the progressives. I do still worry about it. I, I, I know that there's more moderates and I know that they're talking to uh, disaffected Republicans, but man, do I just kind of think that getting those progressives excited would help Biden? I think it would. And, and this is a way to do it. I think Amy Coney Barrett, man, people are going to be Photoshopping her in the, uh, you know, the, 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 the turquoise suits that the, uh, the wives wear in Handmaid's tail and stuff like that. I don't know. But it's Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah, a longer version of the segment that we just did. Politics! Now's the time to go to takepoliticsseriously.com. When the RBG news happened, I literally called Andrew Heaton and I said, look, are you by a computer? Because I was out on a walk. I was walking through Oakland and I'm like, like, let's just record a podcast right now. And so we did. You guys got my immediate thoughts. All patrons got my immediate thoughts. The $1 uh, and above got my immediate thoughts on, on Ruth Bader Ginsburg because you support at takepoliticsseriously.com. But here's my pitch to you guys from now until the election day, there are five weeks, five weeks. That means that if you get on at the $3 level, that's $15 between now and the election day, where you get four podcasts a week. You know some wacky stuff is going to happen between now and then. You know that this is when things change rapidly. I thought that this episode was gonna be so different on Friday, but everything has flipped. You got two podcasts between the Friday episode that I put up and this one, if you're a patron at the $3 level. $15, you spent $15 on some dumb stuff. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you need to go to get on the train. Now's the time, guys. You're going to regret it if you don't. Before we get into our interview today, uh, there is some non-Supreme Court-related news that I want to touch on, and I want to bring in our PX3 correspondent of all trades, my friend... Tom Merritt to talk about everything that just happened with this TikTok deal. Uh,
2: you know, there's so much of this that makes no sense. You have Julia reporting what TikTok is saying, yet you have ByteDance on the other side saying, no, 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 all that's not true. Basically, we still own 80% of the company. So, what do you think is really happening here?
1: Uh, Andrew, first of all, this is going to make the most epic screenplay. I-, I mean, this is tech and Hollywood all rolled into one.
2: Let's talk about what appears to be happening and try to help you understand why you may hear opposite things about the same deal from different sides of it. Here's the basics on the ownership. A new company called TikTok Global will be created, headquartered in the United States. Now, that's easy enough. TikTok itself is currently headquartered in Santa Monica. Though the president said something about it being headquartered in Texas. Let's ignore that for the moment. It will be U.S.-based. TikTok Global, this newly created subsidiary company, will be 80% owned by ByteDance. Oracle will own 12.5%, and Walmart will own 7.5%. Now, ByteDance is calling it a wholly owned subsidiary. That's a common corporate arrangement. Hulu, for instance, is a wholly owned subsidiary of Disney. Disney owns the most of it, but Comcast still owns a small percentage of Hulu, Disney had to go get Comcast to agree to change the ownership structure of Hulu to allow Disney full control of it so they can act like they own all of it. In the ByteDance case, we're assuming that the structure is doing the opposite. It'll allow the minority investors much more control and not give ByteDance all the control like Disney has of Hulu. Now you're going to hear both that ByteDance owns it all from ByteDance in China and that ByteDance owns nothing from Oracle in the United States. These both stretch the truth, but here's what you need to know to make them both not be entirely crazy things to say. U.S. companies own 41% of ByteDance. Forget TikTok, U.S. companies own 41% of all of ByteDance. Sequoia and General Atlantic are the main big drivers there. They're two venture capital firms. So if you wanna make the argument of U.S. control, You point out that those ByteDance investors will have more control over TikTok Global. And when you add in the 20% that Oracle and Walmart have, that effectively makes it a U.S.-controlled company. In fact, some people have done some math to say it's 53% U.S.-controlled. Now, if you don't want to make that argument, if you're ByteDance, you round your 80% up. You say, look, ByteDance owns 80%. That's pretty much all of it, right? Another way you can spin the ownership is with the board of directors, and we're seeing that happen as well. ByteDance has said that its CEO, Zhang Yiming, and Walmart's chief executive, Doug McMillan, will be on the board of the new TikTok Global, and the rest of the directors will be current ByteDance directors. Makes it sound heavily Chinese, right? Oracle said that four out of the five board directors will be from the United States. Well, one of those is Doug McMillan. Who are the other three? if those ByteDance board members are also U.S. investors, well, then Oracle might be telling the truth, too. In fact, Sequoia's Neil Shen and General Atlantic's Bill Ford hold seats on ByteDance's board. All right, let's talk about the operations in practice. Oracle will now host U.S. data for TikTok. It appears previously Google was hosting TikTok's data. That data was kept in the U.S. primarily with a backup in Singapore. Going forward, all U.S. data will be in Oracle data centers in the U.S. So it goes from a U.S. company to a U.S. company, but it moves into the U.S. and Oracle gets more oversight, gets more restrictions, more they can do with it. In fact, Oracle will be able to do code reviews of TikTok's app. This is similar to what Chinese companies do. Amazon and Microsoft have to have partners in China to operate cloud services, and they have to allow code reviews. However, the TikTok recommendation algorithm, the one that's so fantastic and makes TikTok sing, will remain the property of ByteDance. Oracle doesn't get that algorithm. All right. A few other things. Uh, paperwork uh, to clear up the executive order, right? It's supposed to go into effect on Sunday uh, to block TikTok downloads from U.S. app stores. That is for the time being been delayed until September 27th. They issued a new order extending it to September 27th. That gives the deal time to be finalized and approved by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. And then they can offer another deal. Once the papers are all signed, they can say, "Ah, oh, a new executive order rescinds all that. Also, you're... Probably hearing that ByteDance is paying $5 billion to the U.S. and and teaching history classes or something. The president claimed the deal will result in $5 billion invested in U.S. education. ByteDance says it's unaware of any such provision, but it is expecting to pay $5 billion in taxes to the U.S. based on estimated income and other taxes the company will need to pay over the next few years. So again, maybe they'd say, well, we're going to take that money and put it into education. Who knows? Both could be right there as well. When it comes down to it, did it address the big concerns? There were three big concerns. The first was U.S. user data is going to China and by implication, maybe to the Chinese government. Well, yes, it did address that. User data will go from being on Google's servers which didn't have as many restrictions, so potentially ByteDance might have been funneling it somewhere, to being on Oracle servers with strict controls on where that data goes. And don't forget, user data will still be collected on a great level as before, but it'll be used by Oracle and Walmart now. Also, TikTok Global still faces complaints from U.S. child advocacy groups that TikTok violated the terms of its 2019 settlement with the FTC about collecting data from children. But all of the concern about TikTok global data collections are now domestic in the United States. Concern number two of three was that TikTok might push malware. Oracle's code reviews will address this. They'll look for malware. Now, code reviews aren't perfect, but it's it's a good faith effort to say, OK, we're going to make sure. No one's ever found any malware in TikTok, but now we can be sure. And point three of three, was a concern that TikTok would use its moderation to push some kind of political agenda. There's not much happening here. The algorithm is under ByteDance control. Now, presumably, Oracle can bring some oversight with its code reviews, but not directly. Uh, So if you're going to make the argument that this is addressed, it would be that, well, with TikTok Global being uh, owned by U.S. investors, they'll make sure that the moderators are in the U.S. and that they're not doing anything there. It's the weakest of the three, though. A couple other things to note. The Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. will likely put some kind of oversight mechanism on this, uh, which would go along with previous reports that we were going to get a security oversight board. Uh, That will not be made public, but we might get more leaks. We got a leak from the information about that previously. We might get another one. You may be still wondering, like, why Walmart? Again, why is Walmart part of this? Uh, Walmart wants to build e-commerce into TikTok. In fact, TikTok said, we welcome Walmart because of e-commerce. That is something that has been done very successfully domestically in China, both with ByteDance's DuYen, which is their Chinese version of TikTok, and other apps in China where they build e-commerce right into the video. So you can buy the thing the person's showing. In fact, it's been very successful with farm goods on some platforms in China. But that really doesn't matter. Walmart wants to sell you things through TikTok. Uh, Oracle's claiming the deal will result in 25,000 new U.S. jobs. A lot of people have said, we don't see how that can happen. Oracle says, don't worry, we'll make it happen. China is preparing its own list of foreign companies that threaten China. So this is not the last in the tit for tat. But of course, the U.S. has already moved on to looking at Tencent uh, and its investments in Riot and other, other situations with U.S. companies. The EU is now talking about giving itself the power to make companies sell or break off its European operations, which they would target probably at U.S. companies. And the Wall Street Journal did a good piece talking about how Chinese companies are now shifting to focus on their domestic market, where there's still a lot of opportunity for growth, but they are less willing to try to go global than they were before. All right, there you go. I hope that helps you understand a little more about the TikTok game.
1: Thank you very much, Tom. Uh, one thing that, that, that uh, uh, Merritt did want me to tag here on the end, uh, the dispute on the ownership of TikTok Global will come down to how, obviously, all those shares are divvied up. ByteDance says that their 80% goes to ByteDance, leaving them as the majority owner. Oracle says they'll go straight to investors in ByteDance, some of whom are American, So that's where you get the 53% U.S. own number. But we'll see. This is obviously an evolving situation. And you can probably already put your eyes, as Tom mentioned, on Tencent, a.k.a. WeChat, Riot Games, and more. Our guest today is Charlotte Hill. She is a PhD candidate and policy researcher at UC Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy, where she studies election laws and voting. We're going to talk all about 18 to 25 year olds, how they vote, who they vote for, why they vote, and whether or not they're reliable. Welcome to the show, Charlotte. Thanks so much for having me. 18 to 25-year-olds. It is an election cohort that is often talked about. It is uh, youth movement and trends are are kind of a constant source of fascination in so many other areas of our culture. And yet, they have this fickle reputation of leaving candidates at the altar no matter how excited they are before Election Day. They just don't seem to hit the voting booth. So let me ask you this to start things off. How true is that reputation by the numbers?
0: Unfortunately, in the United States, it's true. Uh, And and I will say in general, uh, looking across countries, young people tend to vote at lower rates than older folks. That's kind of a truism when it comes to voter turnout. Uh, it is worse in the United States than in other kind of industrialized uh, Western nations. Uh, we have data on that from various sources. And uh, it, what you see is a, a pretty big voter turnout gap by age here in the U.S., where you might see 60, 70, 80 percent turnout among your older age groups and 20, 30, 40 percent turnout among young folks, depending on, on what type of election you're talking about. So it, it's true.
2: Why? <laughs>
0: well, I wish I could answer that with one word, because then I could just—that'd be my dissertation. No, I'd be no, no. I, well, also, you'd
1: be killing my runtime. Like, I need, I, I need, to, I need, I need, I need you to fill a little time here. But, but, so, yeah. What? What? Why? So what, what? 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 You. What are the factors? Yeah.
0: Luckily for you, it's a complicated answer, Good. right? I love it. Uh, so, so the common thing that you'll hear if you're on Twitter talking about why young people aren't turning out, uh, or if you're talking with your friends and family, is, especially if they're older, is that young people are just kind of lazy and not interested in politics. They don't realize the stakes uh, at play in, in terms of elections, and so they don't come out to vote on Election Day. And the data doesn't bear that out. So when you look at data from, say, the Pew Research Center, a really reputable polling firm, uh, you see that young people, you know, they might report slightly lower interest in politics compared to senior citizens, but the gap isn't that big. Maybe a 10 percentage point difference in interest in politics or belief that elections matter or even intentions to vote. You know, Young people say that they, they plan on voting at pretty high levels. Then when you look at turnout, there's a much bigger gap. So it doesn't seem like Interest is the culprit here. My research and the research of of many other folks suggests that there are structural barriers at play that make it harder for younger folks to participate than for older people. Uh, We can talk through what those are. A a big one has to do with the registration step in voting. So the U.S. is an anomaly in so many ways, uh, and one of those ways is that we expect people. we, We put the onus of registering to vote. On the individual rather than on government. We don't have any sort of national voter registration database that everyone's automatically signed up for. Uh, and the result is that, you know, there are some people for whom taking that step of registering to vote will be easier than others. We tie voter registration to where you live. So we say every time you move to a new address, you as the individual voter have to go to your local, you know, election agency and and re-register and young people move far more frequently than older folks. So that in and of itself means that young people are going to have to take that step of registering and re-registering and re-registering far more often and it's going to lead to lower registration rates and lower turnout. So there are a lot of uh, instances of, of, uh, you know, structural issues like that leading to lower turnout. My research uh, conducted in partnership with Jake Grumbach at the University of Washington found that when you change the rules and say, okay, we're going to let everybody register to vote at the same time that they actually vote. It's called same day voter registration because you can do it all on the same day. When you do that, youth turnout increases dramatically. Turnout for everyone goes up, but it goes up disproportionately for young people.
1: So beyond, let's say, for 18-year-olds who are registering for the first time and you have whatever barriers and anxieties that go into doing anything for the first time, let alone something that has the kind of pressure on it that voting does nationally, you're just saying that in, in general, because of movement of people 18 to 25 that are going back and forth to college or getting a job or moving out of the house... That uh, uh, that th- that is just something that does not jive with our federalist way of of a bunch of small little voting pockets that then add up to a big national one.
0: Yeah, and moving is just one. Reason, you know, a, a high mobility rate is just one reason yeah. why young people have a harder time with the voting system. Some of my most recent research uh, involved a survey that I conducted, a nationally representative survey in partnership with YouGov. I did this through uh, the Berkeley Institute for Young Americans at Berkeley. Uh, and I, I asked young people and old folks and people in the middle of the age spectrum a bunch of questions to try to gauge uh, what sort of barriers they were facing when registering and voting. And what sort of resources they had to overcome those barriers—resources like information and time and and money—and what I found was across every measure, young people reported facing higher barriers and having less, you know, fewer resources to overcome the barriers. So to just make that concrete, yeah, I asked people to agree or disagree on a on a scale, you know, strongly agree to strongly disagree, uh, with a number of statements. So I understand how to correctly fill out a ballot. I know the location of my polling place. I know where to turn for help if I need more information about the candidates and the issues on my ballot. Uh, I know the steps I need to take in order to register and vote. So these are all things having to do with information. And repeatedly, we saw that young people were much less likely to agree uh, than older folks, and that makes sense. 18 years old, you're new to the voting system. Sure. Yeah. Uh, right. And if you haven't been hand, you know, handed that information, again, the onus is on you to to do those Google searches and seek out information, the older you get, the more time you will have had for that information to hit you in some form or another. Uh, But when people are entering the voting scene, they're typically doing that at a pretty low starting level of information. So if we wanna see that high turnout from 18 year olds, 19 year olds, we need to to give them the information proactively, aggressively to make sure they know how to participate. Uh, and that can be a strong civic education curriculum, but it can also be making the process easier. So you don't have to learn as much in order to participate. Right.
1: How much of the youth voting conversation is centered solely around presidential elections? Because in my estimation, local elections or even off-year elections maybe when when stuff gets really really hot with governors or big famous races like we see sometimes in the house and senate you see larger uh conversation around the youth turnout but in general voter turnout is lower for these races and so a a cohort that turns out more fickly uh, uh is just not even a conversation whereas now every 4 years there is this large well, is this the time that there's a candidate that's going to motivate the youth vote like Obama or or Kennedy did uh, uh, in, in in days of yore? But but how much of, of of it is just a presidential race conversation?
0: The people who study youth turnout are certainly thinking about it and talking about it outside of the you know, every four year presidential races. I think popularly, you're right. You know, we see. You could almost write one article about low youth turnout for a presidential race and just recycle it every four years. Yeah, any uh, major national news outlet would would pick it up and run it, and that's what they do in the in the two or three months before presidential <laughs> elections, right? And it's pretty frustrating because it's like we don't really move the conversation forward. Uh, there is. There's something to be said for there being a high-profile salient race with a candidate in it who is exciting and, and younger uh, and can connect with the youths, right? Yes. Like there's something to be said for that uh, having an impact to boost turnout.
1: Which, like, which, which might not describe the borderline octogenarians that are exactly. currently uh, heading our two major parties right now.
0: Joe Biden isn't isn't connecting with, with the young folks?
1: He he literally awkwardly played Despacito off his phone into a microphone uh, uh, to connect with Puerto Rican voters in Florida yesterday. So, I mean, if, if that seems like very relatable, cool Zoomer culture to you, then maybe I, I'm disconnected with the kids. But no, I don't think that they're necessarily very comfortable, either of them, at connecting to the
2: youth.
0: I think that that because of what I said earlier about this kind of flawed understanding of the problem of low youth turnout, this idea that young people just aren't engaged, uh, politicians and campaigns sometimes end up with misguided approaches to mobilizing young people, right? So if the problem is that young people just don't care about politics, then maybe we need to wear the right boots, right? There's another conversation happening about that
1: today. Tell them the Pokemon go to the polls.
0: Exactly. And, you know, there's some segment of young people for whom that is going to work probably, but you know, what What we see in the research is that young people, they're smart by and large. They get that the stakes are high. They get that policy impacts them. They have different policy priorities than older folks that they'd like to see uh, prioritized in government, right? They, young people, especially the, the 18 to 24, 18 to 25 range, they care disproportionately about the environment and climate change. They care disproportionately about race and racism and white supremacy, uh, gender discrimination, uh, sexual orientation discrimination. So, they have issues that they care about that they'd like to see government address and i think if if the folks running for office want to do something to boost youth turnout they should try prioritizing the issues that young people care about and not trying to slap a, like a clever uh, you know sticker or, or bring a, a celebrity into their campaign video and think that that's going to do the trick
1: when when we talk about issues that relate to 18 to 25 year olds, uh, I do think that there obviously is going to be a disconnect. They're they're not going to look at prescription drug benefits in the same way that uh, older voters will. They're not going to look at probably even taxes or tax rates in the same way that older voters who have done their taxes many times will be able to understand. But with the arrival of issues like, Climate change on the left, like sexual orientation on the right, or even or sorry, on the left or even on the right, stuff like cancel culture is something that is more of an understandable issue for voters from 18 to 25 and are uh, generating content that they are currently consuming and are themes and content that they're currently consuming. Are we at kind of a, 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 an all-time high for issues that do relate to eighteen to twenty-five year olds in our current larger political conversation, or does that just feel like it because those are the things that we talk about on Twitter and social media?
0: I think that's a really interesting question. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't have data on it, but I think that it is. Yeah, I mean, the and I don't know that you can divorce that from the power of social media and how it, you know, Twitter especially is driving a lot of news coverage about which topics matter, and young people are kind of overrepresented on, on Twitter and some other platforms, so I think that there are now tools that maybe haven't existed in the past for younger folks to get the issues they care about on the agenda and centralize them in political campaigns, and yeah, you also just can't ignore the the power, and you shouldn't ignore the power of the George Floyd protests and Black Lives Matter protests and how those have been shaping sure. uh, what what seems to be, you know, top on the political agenda coming into November. I, I, I still think that despite all of that, you know, it shouldn't take the country being thrown into deep turmoil over racism and white supremacy uh, for these issues to the fore, to rise to the fore and for young people to feel like, okay, maybe politicians finally care about what matters to me. Uh, we should have an electoral system. We should have rules in place that incentivize everyone to participate, that have an even playing field for people to register and to vote, so that through the act of voting, people can say listen my voice matters and they and they can be represented. You shouldn't have to go around the voting system to find all these clever channels to get your issues to rise to prominence, right? Yeah. Uh, you should be able to do that through the fundamental democratic mechanism that the you know the constitution puts in place for folks to to hold people in power accountable and get their issues prioritized.
1: All right, so this is one of these these pet theories of mine that I just keep telling I keep talking to experts like yourself, and I want to see whether or not I am totally crazy or whether or not some of this holds water. But I, I have this belief that from let's say the late nineties or early aughts on, we saw the degradation of our monoculture. Like network television declined. Even cable television ratings now are declining in favor of on-demand viewing. Uh, grosses for movies are down. The touchstones that we used to have, and especially for youth culture... Uh, MTV, for example, now no longer exists in the same way. Everybody gets their own stuff on Spotify. And even if things are trending, there's no guarantee that you're going to listen to it or watch it at the exact same time. So despite the fact that when I was in high school, people were watching Friends and still now in 2020, teenagers are watching Friends, they're doing it in a staggered way that is not relatable for one moment where you're just looking for something to talk about with your friends or with newcomers. And, and you have it. The one thing that is still there and is probably now more pronounced than it's ever been is politics. It is the one thing that hasn't receded. It's not time-shiftable. It is a we-need-to-talk-about-it-right-now issue. I wonder whether or not specifically for the 18 to 25 demographic, that is something that is electrifying simply because the same stuff Uh, uh, that is nationally unifying, culturally, isn't there in the same way anymore.
0: Interesting. So the idea being that uh, some of the other topics that might have taken up space for young people are now, you can't assume that other people your own age are kind of following the same music, watching the same shows. There's less of an ability to connect there, but you can still connect over politics.
1: I, and and that is and that is universal. So that that is not just for, you know, eighteen to twenty five year olds. I think it's for everybody, But, you know, you form there's a reason why the only time that I look at a music festival lineup, it's probably a band that I was into when I was between the ages of eighteen and twenty five. This is when you form your most passionate bond with some of these issues, and not to say that, again, they're not there. I think people are still finding their favorite bands. They are finding their favorite shows. They are finding their favorite movies. It's just that now there's no guarantee that anyone they know watched or listened to it, uh, uh, they'll be able to connect online with other like-minded people. But in their lives, everybody uh, everybody knows who's running for president in a way that they might have also known other stuff uh, uh, in, in a similar measure 20 years ago.
0: I think that's a really interesting idea. I, I yeah, you should you should pitch some uh, researchers on exploring that further. Nice. There, there are still divisions in the political world too, right? So we have seen a proliferation of you know, online-only media outlets that take different approaches to covering politics, and as we've seen, even just around. COVID, they can, or say climate change, they can come to radically different conclusions about what the facts say about problems. And so even if we all know that uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump are running against one another for president, uh, what we understand about their, you know, the policies that they're going to prioritize when in office, yeah. Uh, or sort of what they represent on the left-right continuum. You know, those things can still vary pretty dramatically. And what you and I might think is common knowledge, you'd be surprised at <laughs> the range oh, of oh. beliefs people have.
1: Maybe uh, tr- you yeah. okay. Oh, no, trust me. I live on the Internet. I, I am I am well aware of our, our dual realities for which we all, uh, we all surf around in our little bubbles. But let me talk to you about that, because... Obviously, the way that news disseminates in 2020 is very different than it really ever has been. And we've got a lot of sturm und drang about algorithms and what gets surfaced and disinformation. You've got campaigns with very, very different strategies on platforms like YouTube, for which if we're talking about 18 to 25-year-olds, we're talking about kids that were were raised on YouTube. They saw probably a YouTube video before they saw a, a network television broadcast from 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 start to finish, uh, is that something that will uh, that that does move youth voters based on on your data in terms of like where they get their information and why they get uh, uh, excited to vote?
0: There's absolutely data suggesting that what people believe about uh, about politics, about issues, and about government itself. and and how we should be engaging with government what the the role of government should be that all of those things are shaped by the media information that you take in and we see that certain types of messages resonate differently on different platforms right there's some great research uh in the last few years about the radicalization of folks watching youtube videos because you watch something that seems kind of middle of the road and then the recommended video is maybe a little more extreme and you go down that rabbit hole until you're you know like on 4chan and uh, that type of you know kind of young white guy who got radicalized by by YouTube. So I do think that there's there's something to say about like the power of social media to shape people's uh, beliefs and and actions. But still, the most important factor that that we see in terms of who votes, who doesn't, who believes what, who believes this, is, is your parents. It's like yeah. the home environment, right? Uh, did you grow up with parents who voted and took you to the, their polling place with uh, with them and or who sat down at home and had you look over their shoulder as they filled out their ballot? That's a very different experience with voting uh, than someone who never talked about politics around the, the dinner table. And it's a sticky problem to fix. Right. That's not an easy thing to fix with. Yeah. With policy to say, hey, we're going to mandate that every parent have a half hour conversation about politics with their kid. You're not going to do that. So then you step back and say, well, well, what are some way the way I like to think about it is let's take folks who have not had the benefit of being raised in an environment where they are told that it's important for them to vote. It's important for them to be engaged in, with government outside of elections um, or who maybe have been told that, but who have looked around and said, you know, government doesn't seem to be serving me very well. Like yeah. my neighborhood isn't in great shape and the policies I care about never are prioritized. So they've said, you know, and I'm, I just I, I, I'm not engaged. How do you take those folks and make it as easy as possible for them to participate in this process, get their feet wet, uh, and start seeing that when they do show up and they do vote, policies change? And what I will say is uh, that does happen. So what we've seen, uh, there's really interesting research looking at senior citizens. Seniors didn't used to turn out at the really high rates that we see them turning out at today. That was largely a, a byproduct of the passage of Social Security Uh, So once there was a policy that was passed that seniors really cared about, they started turning out at every election to say in in order to protect it and make sure that a politician wasn't going to get elected, who would who would uh, take away their benefits. So it's kind of a chicken and egg problem, right? You need the turnout to get the benefits that will lead people to keep turning out.
1: Well, and that's of course where they will find out that nothing really gets done. So, and, and then that'll be a whole other issue, and then they can vote those people out, and then we can we can begin the relationship I, that we have with politics uh, 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 as adults. What what a, what a beautiful, I do, wonderful I do relationship!
0: Want to combat the cynicism a little bit because oh, I think okay, that,
1: you know,
0: fine. There are. Listen, normally I I, I have I, I am the one being cynical myself, but uh, if you look at the early 1970s, you know, Nixon gets kicked out of office. You see uh, a new cohort of largely Democratic politicians who get elected who say, we want to change the rules of the game. Uh, there was far too much corruption in Washington. They passed sweeping campaign finance reforms, ethics reforms. They really listen to the desires of their voters. And things really do look different in in Congress, at least in congressional campaigns for, what, a, a couple decades until you start, once again, seeing the deregulation of campaign finance. But, but for a window, at least, you see, uh, subsequent to that uh, wave of more progressive candidates coming into office, uh, a bunch of of, I think pretty pretty strong legislation getting passed that served the interest of voters. So you're never going to get everything you want. You're never going to see change move in the right direction uh, year after year after year. But there are windows of opportunity, and I think those of us who follow politics really closely are a lot of us are hopeful that this might be one of those windows.
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I know I I can get a little cynical. That's fine. Uh, 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 I, I I I do believe that. Uh, uh, I, 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 have, I have tremendous respect for young voters because I was a young voter, and I, you know, I I was very excited to vote, and and I have not missed an election that I was uh, uh, eligible for. But also, I was a nerd who went to prom alone, so like that that is something that. I, I personally had more of a focus on than, than many do. However, I, I think that there is a lot of issues, like I said before, that that are more pressing now than let's say the issues that were top of mind for the 2000 election, where, where you were talking about a lot of things that seemed very, very far away for a high school senior to grasp when it came to a, pers- a prescription drug benefit or even kind of like nation building on the level that they were talking about a pre-9-11 uh, where where we're at now, I, I I do think that there are a lot of things that are that are uh, a friend of mine for a lot of young voters, and and I do hope that they participate in the process. What what I wonder is whether or not, uh, you know, normally the idea of young high young voter turnout is very liberal, is very democratic, safely democratic. Uh, if you look at the platforms for which are spending uh, young people are spending a lot of time on, there's a reason why you've read a study about radicalization on YouTube. Because uh, even when you look at this campaign, Trump's campaign is running a YouTube strategy that is built for the YouTube algorithm. Joe Biden is running a YouTube strategy that is the way that My mom would use YouTube, which is to upload a bunch of videos so they can be saved forever. Like that is a fundamentally different way of thinking. And in a lot of ways, I think that young conservatives and Republicans have really kind of taken the bull by the horns in terms of a lot of these online platforms in a way that I think the Democrats and liberal causes in in the highest levels, at the very least, have really taken for granted because they just kind of assume that the kids will always be on their side. I think that's right.
0: And when we look at a at the history of uh, movements around the globe that have mobilized young people, we do not see that young people are always siding with the progressive forces. Uh, young folks are, by and large, more malleable, right? When you're 18, you're 20, you are still shaping your understanding of the world. Hopefully, we're always all shaping our understanding yes. of the world. but. You have fewer priors, right, to to use to reject certain ideas that an adult might reject outright and say are too fringe or too crazy. And so uh, any politician who wants to build a movement uh, has an incentive to go after young folks who maybe are more impressionable and try to convert them. So I think you're right. We should be really concerned when we see, um, when I'm concerned, when I see Donald Trump and the Republican Party attempting to radicalize young folks uh through these platforms frankly i would also be concerned if i saw similar tactics uh happening on on the left i think well, that we well should i don't, be I, don't, I don't changing think... the algorithms right so that there's less power uh for these leaders to be trying to basically push their propaganda on young people
1: well i mean that then you know i think that there's a larger <laughs> conversation to be had about like okay well you know right now what donald trump is doing is by and large putting up Clips, small clips of him talking about things that are relevant to whatever the algorithm is right now uh, or embarrassing clips of Joe Biden stumbling over his words uh, and they are uploading like 70 videos a day so they can be better sucked up into the algorithm, right? Uh, Is that more or less damaging than the system we used to have where you could just buy an ad on mad about you and everybody and, and a large section of the population would be forced to see it because there was no DVR. And unless you went over and turned down the volume, you were definitely going to see it. Like I I really don't know whether or not, I think this is a lot more granular. This is a lot more trackable. We certainly have more of a relationship to how it happens than we had before somebody called his friend at Madison Avenue and and placed the booking and then sent them the videotape. We understand this process more, but I don't know if it's necessarily more damaging. I just think it's more familiar.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is a, this is a large conversation. It is a large conversation of, you know, of of information distributed through different sources. There are pros and cons. You know, you can talk to any technologist who, who maybe was an evangelist for, for the internet at first and now is, uh, feeling concerned <laughs> about uh, about kind of these information silos, and that's certainly not my area of expertise. Sure,
1: sure, sure. I what don't I will say is, I there. mean,
0: there are there are two important conversations to be having uh, when it comes to to young people and how they engage in politics. One is around how do we get them to participate at, at higher levels, and, and that's what I focus on. And the other one that I think you're touching on is what is our what is the appropriate uh, Relationship between people who have a political, people who have a political agenda, and and young people in this country is: should we be trying to uh, actively inculcate certain ideas in young people uh, as folks in the political sphere? Do we um, do we just kind of try to meet people where they are? The original idea of democracy was that you'd have politicians say, "Listen, this is what I care about. This is what I'm going to do in office," and Voters would say I, I agree with that or I don't agree with that. If I agree with that, I'm going to vote for you. If I don't, I'm not. And that yeah. was what accountability was supposed to look like. I think now as we have more a better understanding of how the human brain works, we realize that that's not really the case. People are really impressionable and our beliefs are shaped by the very people who are courting our votes uh and so uh what kind of legal regimes should be existing to prevent kind of undue influence or is that a pipe dream i think this this is a really important question it's going to be the question uh of of this century and, and maybe beyond i think as as uh, powerful folks become even more adept at shaping the beliefs and opinions of people uh when we're talking about the legal reforms that need to exist to to create a vibrant strong democracy i think we need to start talking about media reform and what does a smart media reform agenda look like uh in this century but as i said that's you know i I can tell that that that's the way the wind is blowing and i think it's really important unfortunately not my area of expertise that's fine i guess what i would end with is i would want to emphasize that um if you see young people not voting And you feel a little incensed, you know, step back and ask, is it really because they don't understand the stakes and they're not interested? Or is it because we've set up laws in a way that makes it hard for them?
1: And that is a great topic to go out on. Uh, Charlotte Hill is a PhD candidate and policy researcher at UC Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy, where she is studying election laws and voting and has educated us so well in both of those. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Charlotte.
0: Thanks for
1: having me. Politics. And that will wrap it up for us today. I want to thank everybody who supports this show at takepoliticsseriously.com. Again, only $15 between now and Election Day to be a part of the $3 club. Make sure that you get four episodes of this podcast each and every week, plus bonus and emergency stuff whenever things happen and by the way they're gonna happen a lot between now and then but right now we can talk about our titanic ten dollar tier you can join their ranks at take politics seriously too uh as well well no take as well there we go We begin, Lord Generic Frenchman, Dr. G, Jacob Wilson, D-Laser, Dallas Danger Taylor, your boy Craig, Zombie Doc, Gazer Beam, Utah Jimmy Montana, Captain Bunzo, Cujo, Tally Richard, Memory Pie, App, Crookie McCrookface, Justin Ryan, Egan, and Ribs Tibbs McGillicuddy. (sighs) Deep cut for the Night Attack fans there. Vote for Trump 2020, Martin, Government Unfiltered, Neil, Archie, Logan, Darren, Daily Tech News Show, Jay Milius, Olin and Angela, DL, Stephen, Chad, Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, Robert, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Glenn Wolf, Brand, Chili Scoop, Dustin, Just Another Pilot, Middle Age, Mike, Scale, The Gen, MacBook Pro, Leon, Frozen, Jay Pink, and Andrew. One more time for Take Politics Seriously. You know, I guess it would uh, only be 50 bucks if you want to get in on the Titanic $10 tier, you know, throw, throw your boy a little. I mean, that's a little bit more than 15, right? But still, throw your boy a little, a little change. I just bought a car, so I need it. You can follow me at Justin R. Young on Twitter. You can email the show and we will read all of your emails. We got some great ones this week. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, still more talk about politics. And there was one on cable news yesterday that dared to speak about politics, but this is the only show that talks about all The
0: war's still going. In many ways, it's gone better.
1: John F. Kennedy was about to do what he does best, run for president, and win a second term. Until an assassin's bullet killed the sitting president, opening the biggest political power vacuum in modern history. And everyone wants a piece of the action my name is justin robert young and in the new season of my political history podcast raise the dead we tell the epic tale of 1964. race riots vile television ads a secret senate sex den and the most famous legislation to come out of congress in a generation moments that have molded and shaped our modern political world news dies and becomes history but tonight we raise the dead.
0: Vicious, mean, dirty, low down stuff about to, all this. Shit.
1: Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs>